0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello everybody. It is Saturday, January the 16th, as we crawl towards the Biden inauguration. We are being told that the Trump show is ending. Apparently uh, he's on the verge of losing everything. but what's being forgotten, I think, in, in a lot of the discussion on the inauguration is the fate of America itself. Two guys who have done a lot of thinking about America, its place domestically, and particularly American role in the world. are my two guests today, uh, James Goldgeyer and Bruce W. Gentleson. they've been writing, they're both very distinguished experts on American foreign policy, both historically and in contemporary terms. And they've been writing uh, very interesting pieces, particularly in foreign affairs, about America's new role in the world under Biden. Uh, this piece, the United States is not entitled to lead the world, is particularly controversial. It was, it was published uh, in September last year, but it's even more relevant today. Um, let's start, uh, Jim, with you. Uh, what was the point of your piece? Uh, are you reminding Americans that they need to rediscover their place in the world? Should we be more humble? Should we be more aggressive? What's the point of your work?
1: Well, we're really uh, writing toward the new uh, Biden administration. I mean, peace piece was written in September, but in the expectation that Biden would win the election and, and come in, our, our argument was really about His statements saying that once he became president, he would be declaring that America is back. And uh, while certainly uh, many around the world are relieved uh, at his victory, and uh, especially among our Democratic allies, uh, it's going to take a lot more after these past four years than simply saying America is back. Uh, There is nothing, uh, there's no entitlement uh, for America to be. The global leader and uh, the United States should have a lot more humility going forward uh, about our political system, about our role in the world. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't simply think we're going back to uh, some previous period when America was much more admired uh, and played a, a much more definitive global role.
0: Uh, Bruce, you're a... Uh... Uh, A bit of an expert, if you like, on American humility. You've written a couple of books, The Peacemakers and The End of Arrogance, America in the Global Competition of Ideas. Uh, Like Jim, are you arguing that America needs to be more humble in this new world, in the post-Trump world?
2: Yeah, humble and also just more honest about the way the world has changed. You know, and and you can't just go back to the pre-Trump playbook. Um, you got to stop the bleeding of you know, Trump, and you got to, you know, talk to the Europeans and others and say, um, it's not all about us. We, we really want to work together. But I actually served the first few years of the Obama-Biden administration in the, in the State Department, and you could even feel then, even then, when people loved Barack Obama around the world, uh, they still went their own way on a lot of policy issues, including friends of ours. Well, why uh, do not
0: they go their own way, Bruce? Isn't that absurd? What, what, what's so surprising about that? People always go their own way.
2: Well, that's right. They have their own interests, but there is this sense, I don't know, sometimes people think of the United States sort of like Ptolemy's theory of the universe, right? That we're the center and everything revolves around us. And you actually could think of it more like Copernicus, right? Each country has its own orbit. Uh, there's something in the middle of the equivalent of the sun that we got to get to kind of work together to keep us from crashing into each other. Uh, but that America's back part that Jim talked about was very much a part of Biden's speech. Some of it was campaign rhetoric, but there really was a sense that, you know, Trump did chocolate will do vanilla, and it'll be like it was back when, you know, when America was the great global power. Even then, it wasn't as great as we claim to be. But the world has changed so much in so many ways that a successful role for the, the United States and the world is partly more humble and just partly more, more realistic.
0: Uh, Jim, you and I were on a, a call at our friend Chris Schroeder when Evan Osnos was talking about his new book, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. And uh, Evan was actually on the show. Let me quote something from uh, Evan's book, Evan Osness's book on Biden. He said, Biden is 67 years old. He has parted with youth grudgingly. His smile has been rejuvenated to such a gleam that it inspired a popular tweet during the 2012 campaign. Biden's teeth are so white they're voting for Romney. His hairline has been reforested. His forehead appears becalmed. And Biden generally projects the glow of a grandfather just back from the gym. Uh, Is that the best we can hope for in Biden foreign policy? Is Biden the the metaphor of American decline and perhaps even absurdity in the early 21st century?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, it's it's really about um, how... uh, you know how how Biden approaches this, whether he thinks it's enough just to say America uh, is back. I do think that this, uh, you know, this is a this idea time of
0: America being back is you know it's it's a Madison it's 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 a slightly absurd Madison Avenue phrase. Back from what? What does it even mean?
1: Well, I think I think for Joe Biden, what it means most of all is America is ready to reengage with its allies. That it's ready to reengage uh, with uh with the european allies with nato uh with allies in in asia uh you know the trump approach was to consider those allies to be adversaries uh, of the united states and you know for you know a united states that was proclaiming america first and you know sort of turning its back on the foreign policy it had pursued ever since the second world war and you know i think for for biden being steeped especially in transatlantic relations i mean this is somebody you know his career is sort of steeped in in strong u s European relations, and he wants to recapture the he wants to recapture the old magic
0: transatlantic relations is that is that even still relevant? Is that even still a meaningful term?
1: Well it is for Biden. I mean, yeah. there's no question that he sees the Europeans as you know key to what he wants to do in the world that when he thinks about taking on the Chinese and the Russians, he thinks about it in the context of uh, of doing so, you know, with the Europeans, that 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 alliance enhances American
2: power. You know, Andrew, it's interesting too, just picking up on that and your quote from Evan Osnos. You know, during the transition here, the Europeans have been negotiating with the Chinese on a new investment and trade deal. And Jake Sullivan, the incoming national security advisor operating by tweet now, which I don't think Jake ever made policy that way before, but it is the thing to do. Sort of sent out a tweet saying, "Hey, Europe, please take it easy. Don't go so far." We want to work together and the Europeans are closing the deal anyway. Right. And it's not an anti-American pro-China deal, but it's saying we're going to do this, you know, based on our own interests. And Evan Oskins had another article, uh, separate from the one from the book. in which he talked about this new emerging so-called bipartisan consensus, it's almost like a new cold war with China. And he had this great expression there. He said, part of the reason, you know, people on both sides of the aisle like it is after Afghanistan, Iraq, it, it has the comfort of an old shoe. And that's also our concern about that. You know, China is a problem, but going the route of a a new Cold War is not what our allies want.
0: China is a problem. Uh, What does that even mean? The idea that, oh, we have a problem, it's China, a power that is in economic terms. And you you lay this out brilliantly in your articles. America can't control the world anymore. And the notion of seeing China as a problem is in itself an absurdity,
2: isn't it? well no what i mean is you know china's gotten more assertive no question they know some militarization of the south china sea they've been pushing the aussies and 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 to go all the way through with the problem like it's a new cold war is what we're trying to push push back against you know we have issues with china we have common interests right the paris agreement wouldn't have been achieved if we and china hadn't worked together the iran agreement wouldn't have been achieved if we hadn't worked with china and russia so it's a mixed relationship. And but there are some in the administration and, and that actually see it as you know all bad now, all a problem that somehow we're going to solve.
0: Jim and I, Jim, you and I have known each other for many years. We were at Berkeley together studying the old Soviet Union, uh, and you, and you're one of the the most uh, astute observers, I think, of authoritarianism around the world. There was a recent piece about in, in the Times, uh, actually, it was yesterday, about suggesting that the chaos in America essentially Trump it hasn't been a gift to China and Russia very briefly Jim how do you see China and Russia looking at America and of course they're looking very differently
1: well I think the the one way where they're looking at America the same is basically with disdain uh, and you know but they the message they're giving to their populations is could you imagine living in a political system like that you know? I I mean, it's just, it's a huge boost for both Putin in Russia and Xi in China uh, to be able to say to their population, look, our our system is superior. I mean, you know, they've been sort of running with a narrative really since, I mean, especially for China since the financial crisis of 2008, really with a narrative that the West is in decline uh, and, you know, that they... And that uh, photo, right,
0: of a guy carrying a confederate flag through, uh, through congress
1: you know I mean, it just feeds into into their hands I, you know the problem though for both of those countries i mean America still has enormous reserves of strength it's still it still is the leading power uh but just i mean until we can address the divide here at home, the polarization, the gridlock uh in congress, uh you know, we aren't going to really be able to to stand up in a way that uh, countries, other countries will think, yeah, that's, you know, that system is preferable. I mean, think back to when, you know, as you said, we've known each other for a long time. I mean, think back to 30 years ago when coming out of the Cold War, it seemed obvious that the system that the United States was espousing, you know, capitalism and democracy, uh, you know, they both seemed to go hand in hand and it seemed like it was a far superior system to the the challenge of the t- of what had been the previous challenge, which was uh, authoritarian communism, and it seemed like the United States was the model for people to to emulate. You know, who's going to talk about emulating the United States right now?
0: Very briefly, Jim, you wrote a brilliant book uh, which uh, got a lot of attention, but no one seemed to really pay attention to it about America's <laughs> failure to reinvent itself between eleven nine, the fall of the wall, and nine eleven. Um, In your view, is that the core failure that America missed the chance to reinvent itself for the 21st century global system between the fall of the wall and 9-11? Not, of course, that anyone knew 9-11 was going to happen.
1: Well, I think the, the big problem coming out of the end of the Cold War, you know, was the narrative we told ourselves, which was that our system was so superior. That's why it prevailed the Soviet system, which was a disaster, you know, imploded. Uh, And, you know, we just came out of that period with so much hubris. Uh, And we really were able to basically tell everybody what to do, you know, getting back to the earlier part of our conversation and, and, you know, other countries being able to pursue their own course of action. I mean, we really in the 90s sort of had this sense that we could tell everybody else in the world what to do. Uh, And, you know, that has been eroding uh, over time, particularly since the Iraq War and the and the financial crisis, and now, you know, with the last four years of Trump, there's just a lot of wariness, uh, especially among our allies. You know, what is America, and is it just going to keep keep bouncing back and forth between people like Obama and Biden and people like Trump? You know, are they going to another four years? Or are we going to have a Trump-like person or Trump himself again?
0: Bruce, uh, we had you guys are very much part of the, the DC foreign policy establishment. We had another of your colleagues on the show a month or two ago, Charles Kupchan. I'm sure you know him. Uh, he has a new book out, Isolationism A History of American Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Kupchan, who is certainly more on the left than on the right, suggests that isolationism might be one solution to America's crisis in the world. Uh, Where do you stand, uh, Bruce, on this idea of America, if you like, re-isolating itself from the world, going back to uh, Washington's argument that America needs to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world?
2: Yeah, Charlie's a good friend. In fact, Jim Charlie and I had a little conversation the other day about these things, the three of us trying to sort out. And how we can be helpful to our friends who are in government and kind of push back a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't think isolation is the right way of thinking about it because you can't cut yourself off from the world, right? Viruses travel, uh, you know, climate change travels. I think it's more shifting priorities. Right? Move away from the interventionism, you know, 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, what do we have to show for it? And prioritize things like climate change and pandemic prevention, things that affect people's daily lives, uh, which, are, which are profound and which we're losing time on. And it's a very different approach to how you think about being international. So you're not cutting yourself off, but you're stopping this notion that, you know, you're going to go fight every little fire you see around the world. I uh, it doesn't point. work.
0: When you have responsibilities in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. You've caused so many problems, so much damage to the world, particularly uh, in the Middle East, that you can't just retreat.
2: Well, you know, after 20 years, it's sort of like if you have an investment and you say, hey, if I hang in there with this investment in the market longer, you know, I've, I've gotten some losses, but the, but, the, but the returns are going to turn positive. Uh, if I felt that way about Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd do it. But the fact is, you know, you're losing and you're going to lose more. Uh, and there are ways of getting out that can, can not just sort of pull the plug and stuff, but they're fundamentally ending these wars and and trying to use diplomacy to you know, at least get your second or third best options there. But if we say we can't leave, then we're going to be there till, you know, my grandkids are are my age and stuff. It's just crazy. Uh,
0: there's been a lot of debate about America needing a democracy summit. Uh, there was a piece you guys write a lot in the Foreign, in foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, some authors arguing that America needs a democracy summit more than ever. But you guys disagree. Uh, you suggest that a democracy summit is not what the doctor ordered, uh, Jim. Why no democracy summit?
1: Well, so we've now had two pieces on this issue, and and in the first, you know, we argued that the Biden proposal that the United States host this big global summit for democracy in his first year really didn't make a whole lot of sense, especially because it would just. I mean, it's important for the United States to stand for democracy, and it's important to strengthen our own, and to work with democratic partners, but. You know, you host a global summit for democracy. Who do you invite? Uh, You know, three of the NATO allies, Poland, Hungary, and Turkey. If you invite them, you're sending a signal that you're not really serious about democracy. If you don't, you're having a, you know, an issue with three of your NATO allies. Do you invite Brazil, the Philippines? I mean, it just, you know, there are other ways to work this issue. And then, you know, especially after what happened on January 6th, we turned our attention to the idea, well, you know, instead of thinking about this global summit for democracy, let's focus on one here at home. Uh, the first order of business with respect to democracy is strengthening, right. uh, strengthening America's uh, democracy. And there are other people out there saying, oh, you can do both. But, you know, I, I, a big global summit for democracy is going to take people, uh, you know, a lot of time and attention from people who need to be working on 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 lots of different issues. And, uh, you know we should be we should certainly be doing one here at home on on strengthening our own institutions uh before we seek to host some big global thing
2: yeah, and you can put your time and money into it uh, uh,
0: you uh, as Jim said, you had this uh, this argument also suggesting that America needs uh, a democracy summit at home. Uh, your son in fact has written a very influential book recently about the the breakdown of American uh democracy uh bruce where do you see the real crisis then in american democracy and what should this event deal with discuss
2: yeah i know thank you andrew adams book kill switch is really out there getting a lot of attention and he really focuses on the senate you know in the filibuster and traces it back to racism going back to the 19th century my biggest focus right now is on these on on these militias and what we have to call domestic terrorists right And we talked at the outset of the show that Trump will be gone in a few days. We were fairly sure. But Trumpism isn't, it was here before him. These militias go way back uh, and they've really been growing since the mid seventies and getting more armed and they're more empowered and more emboldened. And maybe this week they won't challenge again in Washington but that'll just be tactical. That part of Trumpism, even if it's without Trump is with us. And the most fundamental threat to democracy right now I think are these domestic terrorists will use violence, uh, including, you know, attempting to uh, kidnap the governor of Michigan, possibly assassinate members of Congress. And, you know, Europeans right now are like, wait, guys, not only do you not have the credibility, but your version of right-wing nationalism is actually making our problems worse, right? And, and that really concerns me, is the level of political violence that's before us, even if there's a little interlude now where there's sort of a tactical retreat. These militias are really frightening. They've grown a huge amount, uh, and with or without Trump, they're going to be with us going forward.
0: Jimmy, you you're in agreement there. As I said, uh, you have this excellent book, America Between the Wars, between nine and uh, between eleven, nine and nine eleven. I think that there was paranoia after nine eleven in America. America became obsessed with Al Qaeda, and the consequence, of course, were these these tragic pointless, wasteful wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, I, I take Bruce's point, but should we be wary of, 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 of being paranoid about this so-called uh, right-wing terrorist uh, threat?
1: I don't think it's paranoid at all to be worried about this. You know, you see the kind of people that went into the Capitol. And, you know, just going back to the 11-9 and nine eleven book.
0: Those people weren't exactly terrorists. They just seemed like clowns, weren't they? Mostly.
1: Well, so I I think that. Well, I mean, but think about the people, the armed uh, uh, folks who, who uh, stormed into the Michigan uh, Capitol uh, last summer. I, I mean, I, what I think you saw on the, on January sixth. I mean, it was a mix of people, but a lot of people who clearly believed they could do this sort of thing and get away with it. I, I think the more that we I mean, there are two things you have to do. One is you got to make sure that people pay consequences for taking these kinds of actions. If they think that you know it's just a good time and they get away with doing something like this, uh, then they're going to keep doing it. I, I think a lot of those folks on January sixth uh, and, and people who might uh, sympathize with them, once they, um, you know, once they realize they may be going to jail, uh, I think we'll see we'll see less of of those. You still have the hardcore, like I said, the kind of people that took over the Michigan uh, capital last summer. And you know, the other big problem, of course, is just the the willingness of millions of people to believe lies. You know, the the election wasn't stolen. Joe Biden won. You know, we should be celebrating what happened in November. We had a free and fair election, no fraud, record turnout. Both candidates receiving more votes from candidates previously. I mean, that's you know, that that should have been a cause for celebration and the way in which the states did their job in, in holding that election. So for, for millions of people to believe it was stolen, it was rigged for people to believe that, you know, Trump is, was sent by God and, you know, that he's still going to be staying in power and, and not to believe in democracy for people to believe these QAnon conspiracy theories about, you know, members of Congress engaged in, in pedophilia, human trafficking, I mean... The 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 lack of serious, you know, media literacy and a lot for a lot of people is something that I mean, this is this is going to be really tough to overcome. And so they're they're spun up into believing that, you know, they have to take action in their own hands, especially when they're encouraged by the president of the United States.
0: Curious. Uh, you know, it's remarkable that foreign policy experts like you guys are focusing on, on, on domestic stuff. We had David French on the show. I, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Divided We Fall. Uh, Bruce, how do we reunite America then? I mean, it's all very well to have a summit on American democracy, uh, but 70 or 75 million people voted for Trump. Of those, whatever it is, 50 million believed that the election was a fraud uh sure some of the the people in washington dc last week were absurd clown characters some of them are probably hardcore terrorists but how does the country come together and more specifically how can foreign policy experts like you contribute to the debate
2: well you know i think and i think that the, the problem runs really deep and 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 i think that you know we're really concerned about that i think one thing that biden really needs to do You know, the summit was a good idea we had. We didn't mean it as the be all, the end all, but it actually stirred a lot of debate, which was actually really good. Um, But if Biden can use some of these initiatives sort of FDR style and show people in rural communities and elsewhere that are feeling left out, you know, that they're a part of it, they're gonna get some benefits, just like Franklin Roosevelt did with bringing electricity through the TVA. Uh, There's gonna be jobs, there's gonna be community colleges, there's gonna be better health care, you know, in those areas. There's the racist element that are going to stay racist, but you could peel off some of the people that way, you know, who are supporting these groups and buying into QAnon. And from foreign policy, I think we just have to learn to we have to help people realize that it's not a world we sit on top of, and it's not a world we can stand apart from. We affect the world, and we're affected by it. And we got to we got to help people get a handle on that and understand that jobs come out and jobs come in, uh, and there are people of all sorts of skin colors and. You know you don't have to you know absolutely like them but you find ways to work together and and and, and it actually helps you at home you know you can't even if you have the best policies on covid won't be solved unless there's global policy. same on climate change and so that's where the foreign and the domestic really start to interconnect
0: so we have this strange decline in america it's gone from this to this um how much uh, to, to, and how much do you think figures like yourself, experts on foreign policy, people who have flitted in and out of academia and worked for the Biden and uh, the Obama administrations. How much responsibility do you guys collectively, I don't mean you individually, but collectively have, how much do you need to reinvent yourselves, the American elite, particularly the foreign policy establishment?
1: Well, you know, for me, I think, especially as somebody who believes that America needs to be engaged in the world, Uh, You know, I don't mean through military interventions. Hopefully, uh, the people coming into this administration are much more humble uh, uh, and wary about what the use of military force can accomplish in in lots of different situations. But, you know, in terms of believing in American engagement, uh, America having a role in the world as a leader, but a different kind of leader in partnership with others, engaging economically, you know, I think the, the the real issue for people who work on foreign policy is being able to explain why that's important in ways that, as Bruce was just talking about, matter to Americans, uh, no matter where they live, uh, you know, urban and rural communities alike. And, and until people can see the benefits of policies, uh, then, you know, they're not going to be behind them in the way we need them to be.
0: Ambrose?
2: Yeah, the same thing. I think it's a fair point. We all can kind of talk to our people that we're comfortable with and teach in elite universities and things. But fundamentally, I think it's really helping people, you know, understand and make sure that the benefits flow, that we're not a bi-coastal country, you know, the nicest seller out and and out there in California. Uh, And that also people can't solve the problems on their own. I mean, you know, you can't solve climate change. You can't solve uh, COVID. You know, just by the United States alone. And there's a there's a pragmatism and a fairly straightforwardness that I think the average American gets. I think they realize we can't pull up the drawbridge, but they're kind of angry and and they're confused and sort of help them work that through to see the way that you can, you know, make these interconnections work for for people in some very real ways. And, you know, and, and that's when I think you have something that you start to have in common.
1: And you're going to see a lot. I mean, Jake Sullivan, uh, National Security Advisor coming in, Salman Ahmed, the uh, State Department uh, Policy Planning Director. I mean, they did a project out of government called Foreign Policy for the Middle Class. I think you're going to hear a lot more about that uh, in the coming weeks and months. In a funny
0: way, uh, and, and I'm not putting words into your mouth, you are both, it seems as if, you're both kind of implicit isolationists in the sense that you're suggesting that America needs to retreat to fix itself first before it addresses the world, which I, I don't think is a particularly controversial point. Finally, finally, and very briefly, what does the world look like in the early part of the 21st century without American leadership?
2: Yeah, I would say two things. I, I don't think we're saying retreat. The democracy thing is one thing we're saying, let's work on our problem at home. But everything we've said about climate change and and pandemic prevention are all about working with others as well you know it's a world i think in which people want to engage with the united states but there's no country in the world that wants to sign up for just one team or the other not for our team not for china's team they want to have relations with both whether you're australia or israel or saudi arabia countries that you know you know like to work the united states and so we have to realize that you know, it's a world in which countries, you know, have their interests with us and they want to go their own way. Uh, and we have to get more comfortable with that and, and in some ways do it ourselves, but not in the ways that are slapping others down. Sam? Yeah, and I, I just, you know,
1: it sort of come come back to this idea of if America is going to be a leader in the world, which, which it will be, uh, you know, it's still a major, the major economic, political, military power. Uh, It really has to think differently about what leadership means. It's not you're on top and you're telling everybody else what to do. It's working in partnership. Uh, Sometimes, you know, other allies uh, should be sitting at the head of the table uh, rather than the United States. And and it's just a a very much, you know, sort of more interactive way of, of working rather than the old style American approach, which was that, you know, America's, it was America's way or the highway, uh, you know, that's just not going to work anymore.
0: Well, it's nice to have such humble experts, people with power on the show. And uh, I look forward to talking to you both again uh, in 2021 and onwards about America's new role in the world, whether it can remain humble and constructive. I want to wish you both a very happy and healthy new year. And I'll look forward to having you both on the show in the not too distant future.
2: Great, thanks Andrew. Thanks very much, same to you.
0: You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much
2: for listening.